0: Hello, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comment. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau isn't faring too well these days. There's lots of non-partisan public frustration at what's going on at airports, at the lineups at of passport offices. Meanwhile, the price of goods is going up and up, and all the Liberals seem to be doing is making excuses. Yet as much as it seems like Trudeau is just hanging on by a thread, well, there's no election around the corner, and the Liberals remain propped up by the NDP. Oh, and the Conservatives don't have a permanent leader right now. They're in a leadership race. So what sort of leader should the Conservatives pick to do what's best for the nation and to capitalize on the reduced popularity of Justin Trudeau? Are the Conservatives a shoo-in? Next time around, are they facing big challenges? What do they need to do to pull it off? Our guest today, Tasha Carradine, has thought a great deal about these issues. She's even written a new book on them called The Right Path, How Conservatives Can Unite, Inspire and take Canada forward. Tasha's worked at think tanks. She's been a radio and TV broadcaster, and is currently a principal at the firm Navigator. She joins us now. Tasha, great to have you back on the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Anthony.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you. So, why did you set out to write this book now? There's a lot going on in Canada right now.
1: Oh yes, there is. Um, well, I set out to write. The book, um, first of all, personally, I, I care very deeply about the Conservative Party and about Canadian democracy. And I have been a uh, partisan politician or po- partisan in po- partisan politics um, previously in my life before then becoming a media person as you as you mentioned. So when I was younger, it was the PC party and it was something that really, um, I, I fought very hard for conservatism on a partisan basis for about 15 years. Um, that said, right now, the reason I've written this book is I started writing it after the last election in 2021, when the Conservatives had lost for the third time, and a lot of people were soul searching, including myself, and I felt that I wanted myself to contribute to this conversation, I felt that certain partisanship, I guess, stirring in me again, in the sense that I just didn't want to see the Tories lose again. And so I began writing the book. And then, as you said, things got really busy. Um, Earlier this year, with the convoy protests, with uh, the exit of Aaron O'Toole, with the leadership race that was called. And so the the timeline of the book certainly accelerated in part because I feel it is important now for conservatives to have, to make an informed decision about the direction of the party. Um, They're gonna decide their leader, but beyond the leader, Um, it's about the direction of the party and that's really what matters and that's what the book is about it's about the currents that are informing the race but also the bigger political landscape for the Tories populism conservatism as you mentioned this gap on the uh, center right now because the liberals and the NDP have moved things to the left where does the party go and how can it help Canada and that's why I'm writing the book now.
0: I think you missed one small part in that timeline because wasn't there a period where you were very seriously considering running for the conservative (laughs) leadership race yourself?
1: That is true. And the funny thing is, Anthony, it's because of this book that that happened. Uh, My book deal was announced on Twitter and several people assumed that meant I was thinking of running, Uh. which I was adamantly not at the time. But then I started getting phone calls Um, and people asking me to run and saying, we think you should run. And so I did explore it for about four weeks and that was incredibly, um, I guess in two ways, it was incredibly, um, inspiring for me to reconnect with so many people that I had been active with in politics previously that were still active and to meet new ones and to really engage in that conversation and, and see, you know, was this something that I'd want to do. Um, so it really whetted my appetite for politics, it was very exciting. I concluded that it was not my race to run, um, there was not a path for victory for me. In fact, I looked at the landscape, and as you know, I am supporting Jean Charest in the race, I'm co-chair of nationally with his campaign. And that's because the vision that he put forward was extremely similar to mine, and our base is very similar in Quebec. So that was the decision I made there. But for the book, it was actually incredibly helpful, because I talked to hundreds of people, and many of those conversations were not with people who were even supporting me or supporting Mr. Shray or supporting anyone. They were just to take the temperature where people were at. So a lot of those voices informed the book and it really, really helped actually in finding out what's on the minds of conservatives across the country.
0: Well, I want to pick up a bit more on the conservative leadership race, Jean Shray, Pierre Polyev in a moment, but I want to talk about uh, the thrust of your book here, the subtitle, How Conservatives Can Unite, Inspire and Take Canada Forward? I know you cover that terrain in, in hundreds of pages, I'm going to ask you to condense it to, oh, I don't know, 30 seconds. I mean, what what is what would you say is the the, the the unifying force that needs to get that unity and that that moving forward?
1: The unifying force that I come to conclude is opportunity. And that word to me, more than all the other words floating around right now, including freedom, which is something I, I subscribe to 100% and as very much believe in. But there have been a number of associations that make me say no. I think that word for some people has a negative connotation now. We need something that is positive, that has no baggage, that responds to the needs of the three groups that I identify in the book that the Conservatives need to get on side in the next decade, and the next election, I say is that you know, that's where it starts, but over the next decade to ensure that they remain a force in Canadian politics. And those groups are very simply new Canadians, urban slash suburban voters, and Gen Z and millennials, the next generation. And I devote three chapters to that, very much in detail, a lot of uh, data, some charts, you name it, because if the Conservatives do not succeed in appealing to them, they will literally die out. I am not exaggerating. It's just demographics. It is just math. New Canadians settle in cities, and they have aspirations for their children, and opportunity is what they are all seeking, an opportunity um, in the case of new Canadians to make their make a better life for themselves than they had in their previous uh, country. For urban and suburban families and voters, it is to be able to live in the communities where they grew up, where they want to be, and be able to afford that life. And for the next generation, it's also to have a better life than their parents. So facilitating quality of opportunity is what the party has to be about. And populism is a response to a lack of opportunity, to the sense that things are closed off to you and it's unfair. There's no way, even if you do all the right things, that you can get ahead. You've got to break that barrier down. But as I go into detail in the book, I don't believe that some of the populist solutions are the answers the Tories should put forward because I don't think they'll have a broad enough base of appeal and I don't think they really tackle the right root of the issue, which is opportunity and social mobility. So there you go.
0: Is Justin Trudeau successfully doing those things right now and then the conservatives need to steal his mojo or need to kind of learn to do what he's doing? Or is it that nobody's really doing it and it's a vacuum?
1: He has failed. And I go into that in detail. He has actually destroyed opportunity in this country. It's something a lot of people don't know, but the data bears it out. In fact, the middle class was doing far better before Trudeau came in because his whole ethos, Anthony, has been to make government your friend through wealth transfers his answer to creating opportunity is let's move the money around take it from the wealthy or in his case borrowing it frankly and throwing it at groups like the middle class middle class families the candidate child benefit and i'll explain that in a moment things that might sound really well-intentioned but they don't create opportunity in fact what they've done is they've decreased the actual revenue that middle class families have um, one study I came across showed very clearly that because of the benefits that middle class families received, the earners in them chose to work less. They actually had less money at the end of the day. They had money from the government, but a secondary earners stopped working as much, didn't do as many hours, and consequently, after a few years, they are further behind than they were before. Trudeau also, as I say, he stoked the woke. That's, that's I think it's chapter three. And um, <laughs> I because love it. It, it's well, it's very important to, to understand this because what the government and Bill Morno said it, you know, just recently, I felt like he was doing an ad for my book. I'm like, yeah, that's it, exactly. Is that the government's focus was not on wealth creation. It was not on opportunity. It was on basically leveraging its power to get votes and make people dependent on the government. And that is so, so against what the conservatives are about. And it is, it is the flip side of populism. Populism is the, the notion that we've got to get rid of, you know, elites and, and elites are the problem. But woke politics, what it does is identity politics. And it says, well, it's not about that if you know the right person, you can get ahead or if you're part of the, you know, Toronto establishment, you'll get ahead. No, no. It's if you're part of a group that's disadvantaged, now you'll get ahead and we will dictate it that it will be so. Both outcomes are unfair because both outcomes ignore the merit principle, they ignore equality of opportunity, the, the average person is lost in this conversation and what happens is then they get angry and they get upset and you end up with populism on one side, people getting, you know, you know with pitchforks on one side and you have woke politics on the other side saying similar, but saying you know, you know, we've, got, we've got to change the whole system, the system's got to be thrown out. None of this is productive. And so Trudeau fed that machine. He, he he really did. And that's why I think conservatives need to unite against him. Like, you know, let's forget fighting each other. Let's get, get angry at him because he's the real problem.
0: Uh, Tasha, one of my pet peeves, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this, both as a, as a conservative uh, fiscally and as a parent, is the Canada child benefit. It's always been a pet peeve yes. to me because it sounds so, you know, like nice and inoffensive and it is inoffensive. But it's like at, at one point I had when my children, when they were younger, they're, they're still young now, but three small children at home, Uh, My wife wasn't working. But, you know, I was working my job. I'm not poor. And we were getting a lot of money every month from the government in our account, basically. And it was about the same rate as an Ontario welfare payment. And I was like, the psychology of this, that a middle class family has been placed on welfare by this government and taught to think of it as normal and taught to, oh, thank you, Justin Trudeau. Every month. Thank you. It's not even that one time payoff. It's like a monthly welfare payment from the government that you become reliant on as middle class. I thought, this is wild.
1: Well, this is wild, and this the problem is also the pandemic then exacerbated this, and government, everyone became dependent. I mean, you know, Serb was flying out the door to all sorts of right. people, and then the CRB. And you're absolutely right. If you go back even before Trudeau was elected, and you read the book Plutocrats by Christopher Freeland, his heir apparent to many people, she—it's the whole ethos was started there. The idea that the rich are getting richer, and that is the problem, and you've got to redistribute money to the middle class. The middle class is falling behind. She was right about the U.S. middle class where she actually was living at the time she was in New York. The United States middle class is, was in a very different situation than the Canadian middle class after 2008 and the financial crisis and the crash of their housing market. The U.S. middle class did fall behind. But in Canada, we didn't. But Trudeau acted as though we had. And why did he do this? Because, well, Christopher Freeland, A, wrote it down and it sounded good. And B, if you convince people you're going to be their friend and they need you, they'll vote for you. So. He he capitalized on this angst that people knew was happening in the U.S., but it wasn't really happening here. And he created this middle class prosperity uh, ministry and he threw money at you and he threw money at all sorts of families who didn't need it. And the result was, like I said, it disincentivized work. And so you ended up with a situation where people didn't take opportunities that may otherwise have benefited their family because they're like, well, I'm getting this money. I don't you know, we can afford to scale back the hours and this kind of thing. And maybe your lifestyle, maybe some people like that, but the result is that, in fact, they end up being dependent on the government. And that is what Trudeau is all about. And that's what Morna was so frustrated about.
0: You know, one thing I find interesting, you're saying a lot of populist ideas aren't going to necessarily work for the conservatives. But at the same time, the idea of just giving more and more handouts, I mean, that's a thing that conservatives have a problem, stepping away from the Republicans, love their pork barrel spending. Uh, Stephen Harper really ballooned the Tax Act so that there are tons of niche tax credits. Uh, Doug Ford has just done you know a lot of giveaways during his time as premier. I, I almost feel like of all your your ideas that you're putting forward in the book, that might be the hardest one to actually sell to get conservatives to act on that.
1: Well, I think right now we have over a trillion dollar debt and I think we have to act. And this is what I mean. The pandemic really, you know, tossed it, it just was like it hit the gas on the spending in such a way that the cupboard is bare. We cannot continue like this. And people who talk about guaranteed annual income, I just laugh. I'm like, really? Um, why? Because we did that experiment during the pandemic. It, it did not work. And yeah. we see now labor shortages. Why? People don't want to take jobs that they had before, but they had to leave for whatever reason, maybe restrictions, who knows. But then they're like, no, I don't want that anymore. Um, Well, (laughs) that's nice to say, I I don't want to do that work. But the point is that if everyone makes that decision, the economy is going to collapse and you're going to have a situation where people are all going to be looking to the government and the government will run out of money and and you cannot sustain that. And the lesson I think here is that, um, you know, many of us have had jobs in our lives that we have not loved that have been a stepping stone to something else or that we downright hated, you know, um, whether it was, hey, I worked at fast food when I was younger. I did all sorts of telephone sales and jobs that I really I did that because I had to do it to pay for things that I needed, like university and other stuff. That, that was the worst. I did the
0: telemarketing as well. Oh. I'm, I'm never read to a person <laughs> on the phone because I know I was that person beforehand. I, I will like ghost <laughs> away and just hang up, but I'll never start yelling at them
1: i know i do too i just say you're wasting your time like going to the next person by but the point is simply that um you know you can't work has this inherent dignity and you're right conservatives also fall into that trap we also fall into the trap on the sort of corporate welfare side of like oh let's just give money to companies that's also you know because then that that picks winners and losers and some companies who don't get the funds then are disadvantaged and is that fair not really because it means that you, your competitiveness doesn't depend on how well you do your how well you sell your product or how efficient you are. It's how many friends you have in government. So we have to wean ourselves of that, too. Um, but like I said, I think that there's going to be an appetite for it because Canadians right now. I mean, the biggest issue is cost of living. Everyone is is frightened of inflation. Everyone is looking and going, oh, my God, my grocery bill, my this, my, my gas tank, like everything is going up. So I think there will be much more of a consciousness of the need. Because we're buckling our belts the government needs to do the same.
0: We'll be back with more with Tasha Carradine in just a moment. Tasha, in your new book, The Right Path, you talk about courting millennials and Gen Z. There's something very interesting going on, I think, in millennial culture, Gen Z culture, the issues they're talking about. Some people love the cancel culture, but then the other half of them are doing a backlash against it. I just don't mm. know where they stand really politically. What's going on with Gen Z right now? What, what do these demographics want out of politics right now?
1: Well, you know, it's fa- that was one of the most enjoyable chapters of the book to write um, because I was given a lot of research. A good friend of mine who's worked with youth engagement politically for many years um, sent me one particular study by Deloitte, which breaks down into cohorts, the millennial and Gen Z generations. They've been doing it for a couple of years. And it should be, like I say in the book, required reading for every political party, but the Tories, like, let's get to it first. And so that's one thing, if you're interested in this, like, I think that's chapter nine, um, y- y- you will find it very fascinating because what it shows is that they are not a monolith. To your point, what are they thinking? It depends who you talk to. Within the millennial generation, there are about 20% that are definitely accessible to the conservatives. They mm. should be voting conservative every single time. There are another 20% who are accessible, but they have caveats. Some of them are environmentally conscious, and if you don't have an environmental policy that appeals to them, they will not vote for you. Others are just not very political. They're sort of not as engaged, and so you have to find a way to reach them and get them, you know, why should you vote? Why should you vote for me? You have to find a way into them. Gen Z, though, is that's a much different generation. It's extremely polarized. Only 6% of them say that they are in the center. Everyone else wow. is either right or left, exactly. And so that is the most accessible generation. but here's the thing, only 18 to 24 year olds can currently vote. So it's a very small percentage that are actually active in the next election. So my my question, so what are
0: the ages for Gen Z?
1: Gen Z goes to 24. Um, okay. I don't know how the youngest one is now, but the other ones are from 25 to 39. right. So what you have is a situation where for this election, I say, Go for the millennials you can get because they're the ones who are actually voting. They vote less than the older generation, sure. But get your accessible millennials and identify who they are. And then I say then, election after that, it's the chance for Gen Z. Because Gen Z, like you said, I talked to many Gen Zs and they, woke culture cuts, it's a double-edged sword. Some love it, some hate it. And the ones who hate it, they are conservative. They say, I've done at university, I couldn't stand it too much. They believe in freedom of speech look, um, I'm not on Pierre Polyev's campaign, but I will say he appeals to that group. Absolutely. My own stepson is a Pierre supporter. And we had a really fascinating chat because I said, why? And he said, well, because, you know, um, he's tired of that stuff too. And he's like, and I see him on social media and he acts like no politician would ever act like ever. He tears up stuff and he's, you know, he's, he says it like it is that generation is very much about like, be honest, be straight with me. So, you know, that, that authenticity is important. Um, it doesn't mean that they would all support everything he stands for, but the persona is important too. Being honest and listening to, these, to the kids today, I would say the kids because I'm older, but they want to be heard, they want to be listened to, and they are accessible. So for conservatives, they, we really need to identify who are the groups within there and go find them. And we can do that. And they care about the things, like I said, Cost of living is a huge, huge one. They want a better life than their parents. Opportunity is the key. But they're also really concerned about things like mental health. Okay, Who's talking about that? They care. They, their mental health is not in a good place. They want a party that cares and that talks about that sort of stuff. Um, they also are, you know, they're, they're always told about their identity and that sort of thing. But their mm. biggest identity is that they're gig workers. They're new economy workers. They want to know that they're going to have some kind of security Beyond simply, you know, the job that they have. So what Doug Ford did in the last election provincially with worker um, benefits and this kind of thing is actually very important to guarantee some kind of stability or that's very appealing to them to say that the government, again, it's not throwing money at them. It's just making work rules fair for gig workers.
0: So is there a large cohort of Gen Z who are basically waiting to be scooped up? It's not so much even yes. converting them. It's just like, hey, let's make those connections because our, our get out the vote initiative or however we connect with people is just not scooping them up yet.
1: Yes, it is. And the other important thing to think to see is that many of the groups and I can't the millennials, there was one group called Diverse Strivers. There's a similar group in Gen Z. I can't remember the actual name right now, but they cohort them and they, they name them as like what their their identity is Many of them are new Canadians, second generation, new Canadians, people like I was back in the day, like their parents came here. And so the party also, this is the piece about immigration is very important because that generation, the accessible Gen Zs are say almost overwhelmingly, um, you know, new Canadians and they are in cities. They are like downtown Calgary is the most Gen Z, um, like most, um, uh, youngest d- downtown of a whole country. I mean, most people wouldn't know well, that either. I, I
0: did not know that. That's very interesting. I learned a
1: lot of this. I tell you, I'm learning a lot of this in this book, just doing it. And, it, and it, so this is the kinds of things Like, there's an overlap between urban, new Canadian and, and young, young voter that the party has to seize on. So it, that involves also representation. It involves finding them. And it involves community in a different way, not just online. There's this myth that's all online. No, no, no. These kids, these young voters, They want community, they crave community. And if you give them physical community too, um, I say in the book, I say, establish a youth wing in your party. Like that's been a debate within this party for years. I was a member of the youth wing of the CPC or the uh, the PC party. The CPC should have one. And it's not about ghettoization, it's about socialization. They wanna be with people who they can talk to and have a good time. And it is so important, that physical connection. It, it, even more so today when we're all in our you know, Zoom bubble. So the party needs to get on that.
0: Tasha, we hear a lot about how new Canadians are really natural conservatives for a variety of reasons. Uh, they tend to more be be hardworking in terms of uh, not having these sort of easy doors open to you, uh, progressive jobs out there. They're really sort of working hard to put food on the table. Often faith values, family values have them skew conservative. Is that a phenomenon that you really see backed up by the numbers these days?
1: Yes. And uh, there's a trifecta: um, faith, family, free enterprise. That I think Russell Kirk, American conservative, right. has um, you know used as his his mantra, and it really does apply. Um, not necessarily the way you think, though. Uh, I interviewed Walid Solomon, who is a Patrick Brown supporter, and he is very plugged into the Muslim community. And in talking, he said, you know, the niqab ban in 2015 affected maybe 200 people across the country, like literally 200 right. women who choosing to wear this. He said, but every Muslim he knows looks at this and goes, oh, first it's them. Then it's telling us we can't have our mosque. Then it's telling us we can't have our prayer days. Then it's telling us this and that, and we will be circumscribed just like the governments did on various things in the countries we left behind. We want freedom to practice our faith and be, you know, be ourselves. And that made them very, very nervous. So it was something that I think if you're not a faith person or you're not in that community, you wouldn't get. And I think the conservatives didn't understand this still hangs over their head today. So that is something that has to be dispelled. This notion that conservatives are exclusionary in terms of faith. They're not conservatives. Faith is a pillar of conservatism. It has been since Edmund Burke in 1789. And it doesn't matter what your faith is. He, in fact, was a religious pluralist Edmund Burke was, said really nice um, things about uh, the Muslim faith back in 1789, okay? He, was, he didn't want discrimination against Catholics or Protestants, that was his big debate, but he even went out further than that. So conservatives have a long tradition of faith pluralism. Second is the family, the little platoon of society, extremely important to new Canadians, and there it is immigration policy. What have the Liberals just done? The Liberals have put out a seven-year super visa for grandparents and parents to come, why? Because in the Harper years, Family reunification was tossed out the window for those cohorts. And instead, you had a 10-year super visa, but you had to reapply every two years. That you couldn't just come for seven years and stretch. You had two years of grandparents could come. Why do families bring over their grandparents? It's to raise their kids. It's to have that not just cultural connection, but so that they can access opportunity because they don't have to put their kids in daycare, right? And people weren't thinking along those lines. Mm. The conservatives didn't think that. They need to go back to understand the family for new Canadians is everything. And that is a value conservatives have. They need to to connect on that. Um, and the final thing is free enterprise is just, you know. Less red tape, less regulation. We've stood for that forever. So why aren't we beating that one on the drum, uh, like beating the drum on that too?
0: When it comes to something like immigration, Tasha, to what degree do you devise policies because you want to go after certain voting blocks and because you don't want to be perceived as as something negative? And to what degree do you do it because look, hey, we got to do it this way and we're going to explain why. And what I mean by that is right now we're up to about 400,000 immigrants a year intake into Canada. Uh, A lot of people, of course, coming to the GTA and those numbers are believed to be fueling some economic concerns in terms of housing prices, although that's totally all up in flux right now. And you want to say, I don't think 400,000 is the right number right now. And we've even had various social service agencies who are very welcoming of immigrants say like we have uh, concerns with, the absorption, the current volume in terms of getting people here. More predominantly that's with refugees. I remember during the Syrian refugee crisis, they said, well, hold on, look, we welcome people, but you you know, the numbers and the timeline just isn't working. Can we say 400,000 guys, that's happened really quickly. You know, the previous gold standard of 275 or whatnot, we want to go down a bit to 350. And then of course, I know those headlines in the Toronto Star and the CBC, oh, you don't want these type of people coming to Canada and you're anti them, you know, that's not it. We're talking about well-being for all. Can we still do those things, Tasha?
1: Well, okay. if um, every... I know I'm asking a lot there. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And it's a valid question. And, you know, if um, we had no problem filling all the jobs in Canada right now, I'd be like, yeah, maybe we should be considering that. If women were having fewer, uh, more than 1.3, I think it is, uh, children per um, replacement fertility. Uh, I would say yeah, and to be clear, we I'm
0: not making the argument we should reduce the we number. Don't. I'm just saying okay. that that conversation's a conversation, you know. Conver- yes. And, and how think, can look, we have every
1: conversation is valid? And this is the book has a, and exactly why we're having this conversation. Absolutely, have the conversation. But what I'm saying is the facts. It's, it's math, and this is what I look at in the book and say, look, it's, it's just math, people. This is not even um, a value judgment. It is that if you do not bring in a certain level of immigrants, if you do not Get those immigrants and those new Canadians voting for you, the party will not be able to put, won't, won't survive, first of all, and you won't put forward any conservative policy, there won't be a conservative party. What the reality is, it is difficult for a conservative party in a country of perpetual immigration, and I go into that as well, um, because is psychologically, conservatives conserve, right? I understand, That's absolutely, we conserve the past, heritage is important, continuity, incrementalism, Those are conservative values. If you've got a country that is changing so fast, of course, how can you be in a conservative in that environment? It's a fair question. Uh, I think it goes, though, to the basic values that conservatives have that I outlined about faith and family and free enterprise and opportunity and all those things. And it is integrating, and we have to make sure we are able to integrate, absolutely. We can't take on um, numbers that we cannot integrate into Canada. So it is a fair question. Are our services keeping up with this or not? Um, You know, are we bringing in refugees who have more trouble absolutely settling in than economic immigrants or family unification with economic immigrants? hundred percent. But the point is, we need to look at it and say, okay, we want to build this country. How do we get the best and brightest here? How do we make sure that everyone's got their place and can succeed and has opportunity and grows things? And I'll tell you, you look at the native born Canadian children versus children who are either immigrants or born to immigrants. The university attendance rate is much higher in the second group. Um, there's, it's a myth to say that people are a drain on society. Right. It is not the case at all.
0: One argument, a very pro-immigration argument that I hear a lot, and Justin Trudeau's, I feel like I'm not sure what really the argument is in the numbers, it could just be pandering. As you probably know, our colleague Terry Corcoran, he's previously argued that Canada should get to 100 million population, and you just need to bring in like as many immigrants as you can, a month, a year, uh, as much as you can absorb, just because you get to 100 million, and you get an aircraft carrier, you get to to be the big boy at the G7, you get to call the shots more in your trade deals, and it's like, it's a compelling argument.
1: Sure. And the Century Initiative has been embraced not just by Terry, but by corporate leaders. Um, it's, right. it's been ongoing for a while now to get to that number by the end of a century. Um, I think, though, that this goes to the balance we need to find, too. And this is where the issues of you know woke culture and um, I will say the tearing down of national myths. I talk about this in the book as well. Um, we have to have a balance because you can't simply change your culture I mean you can't first of all a country is built on certain parameters and certain histories and you have to respect the good in that certainly there have been things Canada's done that were very bad and that we have to atone for but you also have to make sure when new Canadians come here that it's that they understand we're a country with so much to be proud of you tear everything down then what are you hanging your hat on Why are you here? So there has to be a connection with the past and conservatives are very much about that. They're about the continuity with the past and the heritage of the past and building on the good. I mean, I think Disraeli said that, you know, he's a conservative to conserve what is good and he's a liberal to, uh, to, or progressive to get rid of what is bad, right? And that is what conservatives should do. They have to stress the good. There's a patriotism element. The young people I talked to in particular said, and one was, was a new Canadian who voiced this very loudly. I quote him in the book. He said, I like the Conservatives because they are a patriotic party. They uh, stand for Canada. And you know what? He's right. You've got to be proud of your country. So there is a balance. You know, it's not just a race for the numbers to get so many people in. It's to make sure that they understand what they're getting into.
0: But, but you know, it's interesting because there are a lot of immigrants who I think are coming because they have a better understanding than perhaps Justin Trudeau even does about what's going <laughs> on. Uh, really interesting new book by Lydia Paravik where she talks about the headline is, Uh, the the sub headline is An Immigrant's Second Thoughts and and she comes at it from a a more of a left-wing perspective but she came to Canada from Montenegro in I think 1999 for these sort of Canadian liberal values and one thing when I see like statues of Sir John A. Macdonald being torn down it's that well I don't think anybody comes here just to see statues of Sir John A. Macdonald but they're coming here because they've heard about Canada they've heard the Canadian story they've heard of Canadian values and they're like hey I want to be a part of that I want to contribute to that and then they get here and they go what, they're tearing that down?
1: Right. And that is, and it sends that message. I, I agree 100%. Um, that is, it's a negative message that is sent to say that we will just basically junk the past. Um, I think, you know, John A. McDonald's legacy obviously is more complicated than the one that I would have learned in school um, that they teach today. And we understand more about the implications of his policies, but he founded our country. You know, without him, we wouldn't be sitting here. Uh, he, he just he ascribed it to like herding cats to get confederation actually to be a thing. And when you read about him, he, you know, wanted to have peace between the French and the English in his government. He he was a, a very, you know, for his time, he was very progressive. He describes himself as a progressive conservative. When you read McDonald's early stuff, which I did, because I, I read about, I think, about 30 books to write this book. Um, and you read him. He he was self-described as a progressive conservative. His original party was the liberal conservative party, not liberal big owl, really, it's more values, sort of you know uh, values of freedom and this kind of thing, classical liberal values. That was what his party was for and what it was about. So those are the values. I mean, you look at the charter and you look, um, you know, at, for the freedoms that it guarantees, that, that's what Canadians are proud of. They're proud of those things. In fact, people are complaining that Trudeau's, you know, stomped all over them. Um, and so it's not the little prize of a monopoly just because they brought in the charter. They have to respect what's in it, too. And, and I think there's an argument to say they haven't.
0: All right. I'm going to be off and ask you one of those impossible questions again, uh, talking Ooh. about going back to the, the origins of Canada, Sir John A. MacDonald. And of course, there's some people would say cancel Canada Day. You can't talk about him. Cancel Sir John. Back when Stephen Harper first came in as prime minister, the slogan, I think it's the campaign he won the first time, the slogan was stand up for Canada. Now, looking back, I don't know if it's necessarily fair to say that, you know, Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin were not tearing down Canada uh, by any means. You know, Jean Chrétien, of course, fought against uh, uh, Quebec separation. A lot of people saying Justin Trudeau, well, he is, you know, we're a post-national state. He goes around the world and he kind of smack talks us when he thinks we're not watching at these international uh, places. Maybe there is a need to stand up for Canada, for what we are, for the Canadian identity. Tasha, through your research and thinking about all these questions, how are you now defining this nation?
1: Um, I think we are we are a nation of opportunity. It comes back to that because that is, in any nation that is built on immigration, I mean, the United States is too. Um, they have a more complicated history because of slavery and other considerations. Um, you know, we were not angels in Canada either and how we treated many people who came here, but uh, they have a, a more complex history, I would say, with regards to that. But any country that is a country of immigration is fundamentally a country of opportunity because that is what people are seeking. They are leaving home for a reason. They are coming to you for a reason. They want a better life for themselves and their children. And to me, conservatism offers the best possibility of that because it is based in equality of opportunity. Edmund Burke wrote about that too. It is, that is the the whole idea is that people have the chance to better themselves and to live in community, not just as Adams, but in community. So Canada is that country of opportunity. Um, I conclude the book with, you know, what could we do in the world? Like you say, like, What could inspire people to say Canada is is greater than X country or Y country? We have a chance to contribute through our critical minerals industry, which we are starting to do. The ring of fire was actually a big issue in the last Ontario election. Um, But, you know, when it comes to squaring the energy environment circle, Canada is at the forefront and we could be a global leader in that and build on the tradition, the heritage we have of being a resource producing nation. We should be proud of that. We should be proud of our oil and gas. We are making every effort to extract it in as responsible a way as possible, whether it's carbon capture or other things, we should trumpet that from the rooftops too. Um, but we should also say, look, we have a next gen of energy in the world, and we can power the green revolution with what's in our ground. In the same way we have done for hundreds of years, we have powered you know, the world in other ways, with exports, with timber, with, with, um, with mining too, with oil and gas, we have we have contributed much more to the world than most countries our size so we should be proud of that and we should move forward on that and have a vision of canada as this energy superpower harper wanted to do it as a petro state but i think we have to go one step further and mm. what i like is that in this leadership all the candidates well, most of the candidates are talking about that Josh ray is talking about that paulie have talked about that i believe aitchison did uh roman babers alluded to it like it's on the lips of people so Let's move on that
0: one. An idea that's time has come. Tasha, before we go, we're here to talk about the book, but you are supporting Jean Charest. All of these things you've said, you clearly feel like Jean Charest is the best person to champion all of this, to win the leadership, to become the next prime minister. Uh, I I will say I'm not so sold. um, And I see him as a bit of a yesterday's man and I see him as a bit of a Trudeau light, but I I would be happy uh, to be convinced otherwise. Why are you uh, as supportive of Jean Charest as you are?
1: I've known Jean Charest since I was involved in politics when I was a teenager. And um, the Jean Charest you have today is the same Jean Charest you have then. He is authentic in his devotion to the country, to the things he believes in. That authenticity is priceless. That is today in in currency, when you look at the leaders that have lost the last two elections for the Conservatives, why did they lose it? Nobody trusted them, why? Because they weren't authentic. They ran as one thing and then they, they wanted to govern as another. You can't do that. He's got a track record. It stands up for itself in terms of his fiscal responsibility when he's premier of Quebec. He is not a liberal as the other party or other campaigns would like to tag him. That's very nice. But, you know, okay, he I don't kind
0: care. of is, though. Like he appointed no. Tom Mulcair <laughs> to cabinet. And I like Tom. He's a great guy, but he's an NDP <laughs> slash liberal guy.
1: Tom Mulcair quit and went to the NDP. Exactly. Uh, you don't know, no, Jean Charest, when he was premier of Quebec, was fiscally far ahead of his time. He set up a Fond de Génération to pay down the debt. He was very concerned about that. He lowered taxes. He did a whole bunch of things that conservatives had. His party had the label conservative. No one would be having this conversation. They didn't have a conservative party back then. I talked to Éric who's the current leader of the Conservative Party. I interview him in the book, and we talk about conservatism in Quebec. I mean, it it's been there, but it never had its own, you know, its own defined space. Um, Jean Chretien was acted like a conservative within the Liberals, like Christy Clark did in BC. And so, anyway, that. But apart from that, it is his genuine desire and ability to unify the country and I say in the book too the problem for Canadian Conservatives too has been that the first order of business in Canada is just keeping this country united and keeping all the pieces of it working in concert when they are so often at odds he is a master at that and he is you know he's come back out of private life he didn't have to really uh you know he gave up a lot to do this so that's why I believe you know I believe in him and I believe he is the best person to do this he's got the gravitas and he will also appeal to the voters that we need to appeal to, because they will sense that genuineness as well.
0: The Right Path, How Conservatives Can Unite, Inspire, and Take Canada Forward, the new book by Tasha Carradine. Tasha, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a great conversation.
1: Oh, it's been wonderful, Anthony. Thank you.
0: Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Prue with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us
1: a rating or a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.